Hi, welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant, and together with Andrea, Bex and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series Ted Lasso. So if you love Ted Lasso as much as Colin loves Jordans, then join this group of four women, handpicked by Beard himself, and let's go. Welcome back, Greyhounds. How are we all doing? How did everybody cope with a Bridget Jones' diary? Bridget <laughs> Jones's diary? Bridget Jones' diary. Let's Bridget, clear that up straight away. There's an extra, po- there's an apostrophe and another S, as there should be when yeah. a name ends in S, but it is singular. This is a pet peeve of mine. As someone with a last name that ends in S, if people just throw an apostrophe after it, I'm like, no, 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 no. The rule is you do that when it's plural and apostrophe, like plural and possessive. When it's singular and possessive, S, apostrophe, S. Right. I love that we haven't even started when we're ready like, man, this sucks. <laughs> no, um, I was going to say you called it Bridget Jones's Diary, and I would say Bridget Jones's Diarrhea. That's my take. <laughs> that is an excellent use of wordplay. I thought you were wow. going to go straight for the dairy, but we, well, <laughs> dairy can sometimes lead to diarrhea, so it all works out in the end. I don't <laughs> know. What a great start. What yeah, a great just, start. We're literally talking shit within the first five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but Bex, you have a summary for us. I do. Um, of, of Bridget Jones' diary. Bridget Jones's diary. Bridget Jones's Diary is a 1996 novel by Helen Fielding, written in the form of a personal diary. The novel chronicles a year in the life of Bridget Jones, a 30-something single working woman living in London. She writes about her career, self-image, vices, family, friends, and romantic relationships. While it is not a direct adaptation, there are certainly elements of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice that appear throughout the book. The opening line of both novels starts with, it is a truth universally acknowledged. The most obvious one, I think, is the character Mark Darcy being inspired like by name anyway, well, and behavior by Fitzwilliam Darcy. There are references to the miniseries starring Colin Firth, which is awesome because he was the one who played Mark Darcy in the Bridget Jones. Meta film adaptation anyway i'm gonna keep that that short because i didn't love the book and i'm afraid that anything beyond the wikipedia description will be sprinkled with my biased perspectives is it just me you're in your 30s call it a journal <laughs> call it a journal not 12. it doesn't sound as good though bridget jones journal I did want to throw out a couple trigger warnings for discussions of weight, body image, and eating disorders, just for audiences who might not be familiar with the text and have concerns about that. Next up is it appearance in Ted Lasso. Why are we even covering this book? Bridget Jones's diary was mentioned in season one, episode eight, The Diamond Dogs. Uh, this is the part where Rebecca requests Ted's assistant with talking to the Milk Sisters who are partial owners of Richmond. We'll get to how how much of a percentage they own in a moment. He agrees to do it, well, really because he's Ted, and but also because she had just helped him with the panic attack when they had been in Liverpool, and it was kind of like a, you got my back, I'll get yours. So I decided to go back and check the episode for the milk puns that Ted made when referencing the Milk Sisters 
and how we get the reference to Bridget Jones's diary. In her office, how much of the club do they own? 2.9%. I'm going to round that down to two. Then I can call those gals the 2% milks. That's a specific American joke as well, because we don't have 2% milk. Well, we probably do, but we call it semi-skimmed. Semi-skimmed. That's a cop-out. That's such yeah. a cop-out. Then we have Ted and Rebecca showing up at the pub. Ted says, you see the Milk Sisters anywhere? You want me to go skim the back room? Rebecca replies, don't make me regret this, Ted. He says, don't worry, I'm going to be an utter gentleman, okay? Hey, I wonder if they've ever seen the movie Bridget Jones's Dairy. Oh, Ted. Sorry, that's not my breast milk pun. I can do better. <laughs> and, and the last one from that scene is when Rupert shows up and says that the Milk Sisters won't be coming to meet with them. Ted responds with, oh no, did they expire? So there are your milk puns and why we have Bridget Jones's diary as a topic for our book club. Thanks for that, Ted. <laughs> now, I must say, we're given a negative impression because um, we have we don't all hate the book. Marita, you're... The big, you like it, don't you? You're a big fan I do of like the book. I mean, I'm not a super fan, but I tend to to like to contextualize things and appreciate them for what they were at the time they came out. And I uh, I also really appreciate Colin Firth. It's um, almost so like, that I think predisposes me too. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost like when Bex mentions Sam and it's like, oh, you've never you've never mentioned you like Sam. <laughs> First on the books today, Andrea, I'm looking forward to hear what you've got to say. Hello, hello. First, I have to share that I am enjoying a lovely cup of hot brown water while I do this, and it's delicious. Roy no is right. No milk that in is there? wrong. No milk? No milk, no. No milk? Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so I'm starting us out off because I am, um, I, I finally got to the point where I had a couple positive thoughts about the book, so we decided to start on a little bit of a high before we delve into the, you know, the rage. Rage. <laughs> Pure rage. <laughs> so I, you know, I'll admit when I first read the book, I was very highly triggered by several things. But when I started to think about it, and I kind of, you know, I kind of took a moment to kind of think about it. And I, I heard some of the things Marita was saying. And I was like, okay, yes, this is simply a book of its time. You know, we've read a lot of older books already in this book club, and they are all problematic in their own ways. And all of them are products of their times. You know, I should I don't believe we should ban or deny books you know, and, and their stories. Because of that, I think we should be honest about what the book represents, the time that it was, even people who seemed advanced with their times in certain ways of thinking, thinking had other topics, other things that they were, they were not, you know, just to kind of use a completely different example. I was thinking about like the founding fathers in America. We talk about how great they were. Yes, they believed in freedom of religion and all these things that were great, but they also had slaves. So it's like, eh, you know, yeah <laughs> should we should we throw them out because of it i don't know like they were a product of their time and they were also saying things that were very you know like shocking and 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 trying to bring change about i was thinking about the book in my head in that way because i do believe you know i don't believe we should be banning books i believe that we should be reading these books and the value that they bring the stories that they're telling us the things that are important that are coming out of it even if they're using language that we find you know like slurs i know we had that definitely with like ender's game and stuff anyway that my little ramp there 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 was one one bit like she used the uh the word for cigarettes that we don't use yeah you don't really use that 
but Ted like, calls that out in the show too. So that was a great, a great connection <laughs> about slurs in the book. It wasn't used as a slur. It was just used to refer to cigarettes. But now to see that you're like, Ooh, cringe. you know, and the other aspect is this book is a parody of itself. You know, it's, it's a very much an over the top book from, I feel like the eighties and nineties were very over the top, very like kind of poking fun at themselves. Like I was listening to this book or, you know, um, I, I partly listened to it, partly read it. There were times and I was just kind of like, they have like, like almost kind of like, do they, are they like, are they even thinking about what they're saying? Like this all feels so surreal and over the top and just like ridiculous. And so, and that's where I get the parody kind of element. Um, and Marita, I hope you're going to go into that a little bit more about how it is a parody, but um, and it's okay if you're not. No, I <laughs> right? am. But it, but we're we're going to go for satire, but but I think we're on the same rough Yeah, page. I but also yeah. posh, posh English people are kind of a parody of, of themselves. <laughs> right. And in some cases, self-consciously so, uh, from British humor. I mean... I mean, the book is a comedy, unfortunately. Well, and even, even in the book, they're parodying... I mean, when they do the Tarts and Vickers party, right? I mean, that's, you know... Right. Sort of self, self-satire, self self-parody. Exactly. Of, of society, anyway. So all of that, all of that generosity I'm giving to it, it's pretty shitty comedy. <laughs> <laughs> it uses the female lead character as the butt of all jokes she is the butt of every single joke stereotype of a woman in every aspect she's unlikable she's uncaring she's shallow she's obsessed with herself she's obsessed with her looks she's obsessed with everyone else's looks she hates other women she hates everyone else she only wants the attention of a man and even like i was even kind of like having a moment about you know, a boss, a boss and a employee having a relationship, which comes up in Ted Lasso, as we all know, as well, you know, some of the arguments about, you know, Rebecca needing to be wanting, wanting people wanting Rebecca to be happy, and that it would be okay if she was dating Ted, who was her employee. I don't know, I've always had a slightly visceral reaction to that. And I think it's just, again, me coming from I don't know, maybe corporate America and my time just feeling like that feels weird. And then hearing it in the book when the the boss is like flirting with her and talking about her skirt, I was just like, oh my God, like <laughs> this is an HR nightmare. <laughs> you know, sure. We can all laugh and say, ha, huh, it's just a joke. It's a parody. It's, you know, it's a joke. They're not serious, but everything in our culture, our society encourages and enforces this narrative about women everywhere it's in cartoons it's in everything we read it's in everything we watch it's just like it's pervasive everywhere and i feel like if we continue to forgive it and allow it and don't speak up about it it's hurting all of us to be honest i i didn't want to think about this this book as it relates to ted lasso i was just like my initial was just like these two things are like <laughs> Like, I don't want to compare the two of them. Um, you know, I didn't even want to consider them in the same thought, you know, and I usually talk about how I see a character in the book as a character in the in the show. I couldn't. And and I do have a couple examples where I'm like, okay, sort of, but I didn't really want to go into it. And so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about the difference between how women are portrayed in Bridget Jones and Ted Lasso. I mean, everything Ted Lasso shows us about being a woman is, is a woman in the world today. We have our own agency and it's the complete opposite of what we see in the book. If I was forced to think about it, you know, we do see the women in Ted Lasso in the beginning dealing with a lot of what we see in Bridget Jones. Ke Keely, I think starts off, I think we've all said when she comes on the, sh on the 
the screen, uh, there's like this immediate feeling that maybe she's a bit shallow character. She's just dating the latest footballer. She's concerned about her social media presence, how she looks, which very much falls into, I think, the British Bridget Jones kind of narrative we were hearing. You know, Rebecca was willing to throw away the entire football club because of a man, you know, in spite of a man. Um, she also remains obsessed throughout about finding a relationship and feels like it's going to define her. So there, like, okay, <laughs> I've made my comparison. There you go. There you go. The I, end. I will, I will get into one that I found too a bit later. So I'll save you that grief. <laughs> Thank you. Do you need a shower now? Do you want us to pause while you have a shower? Cause that seems really hard for you to compare those two things. You feel dirty now, right? I know, but I think I it does make sense. And, and it also, I think it makes a lot of sense that that's where our minds jumped like the conclusions our minds jumped to when we first saw Keely you know before we really understand a lot of the motivation behind Rebecca's uh, actions like we as viewers would see them as shallow like so that says a lot about us as consumers of the the literature well, yeah, and I'd add, I mean, we're all roughly the same age. I mean, certainly the same generation. And I think we've all spent time having to combat our own internalized misogyny in a way that when this book came out, none of us who were, you know, probably in our 20s then would have would have yet done. Yeah, very good I point. Was, I was 15. <laughs> oh, get out. Okay, oh, come whatever. on, you were like 18. Anyway. It wasn't, you're not that much older. 21. It's 21. <laughs> it came out in 96, right? I'm thinking about yeah. the movie, which okay. was 2000. I've oh, yeah, the movie. The, the movie changes things. 96, yeah. yeah, that's not bad. Okay, you can say 96, I was 23. And I was 21. Yeah. Okay, so I'm well, the I'm baby the here. <laughs> I'm the oldest? I yeah, I can't get Michaela, how old were you in? How old were you in 96, Michaela? I left school in 1916. I was born in 79. I can't do maths. So I'm 17. You were 17. Yeah. I'm 75. Yeah. 81? I'm age 14 <laughs> here. Like I was a naive little 17 year old idiot. But yes, we are all within that, that same decade for sure. So I'm the mom of the group. Well, Andrea, I, we already knew that. Problems <laughs> now. Yeah. We didn't need ages. Hug. We didn't need ages to verify that. You <laughs> knew. <laughs> I'm the annoying little sister. You're the- <laughs> I'm the cool aunt. Yeah. You are the cool aunt. You are I'm cool. the, the know-it-all baby. <laughs> and that's, that's- <laughs> I don't get to be the baby it. in many scenarios. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> back to on topic here. So, right. So we do see Rebecca and Keely, I think early on having these problems and it, but it very quickly goes away. Like it very quickly you know, goes into a completely different direction on who they are and what makes them what they are, right? But Bridget Jones stops. It does not delve any further. We, you know, we see much like this book, these people are a product of their environments. Her family is horrid. We see it. She is, she is a product of her environment and she is living in the world that has been created for her. You know, the, the things that she thinks are important are the things that her family has told her are important. But Ted Lasso goes so much further. So yes, a woman can be, and we all are products of your environments. We all are as human beings, products of our environments. We all are. We all can be. We can all fall into society's fallacies. We can encourage it. We can uphold it, but we can also be so much more. We can learn and see our mistakes and grow from them. And the important thing I think to Lasso does is it shows that, you know, Rebecca makes mistakes and then she changes and we all love her. 
you know, and I hope we're going to get that with Nate too, right? Like we loved Nate. Nate did some bad things and then we're going to love him yeah, again, it's right? Quite, it's interesting how people are less likely to forgive Nate than they are Rebecca. I can't quite put my finger on Racism. it. Racism! But... You definitely leave that part out if you yeah. want, but I would go with racism. <laughs> totally racism. So we can, you know, we all can both be women who want to be beautiful, loved and cared for by our significant other. And we can be so much more. We can want our careers. We can want to have kids or not, or this or that. And we can care about our weight. We can care about being healthy. We cannot. We can do all these different things. What I love about Ted Lasso is it shows that it shows that we are so much more than these things. You know, so uh, Ted Lasso shows us this and it can it can be so much more important than having a laugh at Bridget Jones can be. Sure, Bridget Jones is doing something and it's saying something and we can all laugh at it. But I would prefer to think about, to talk about Ted Lasso and what it does differently. I'm going to talk about Rebecca for a little bit. So again, yes, she does want to be in a loving, committed relationship. That is something that she's focused on throughout season two, season one and two. It's very important to her, but it's nothing, there's nothing to demonize there. It doesn't make her wrong or pathetic. You know, Rebecca is a beautiful woman. She's also very strong. She's a great friend. She's a great person. And the thing that struck me most about the scene with when her and Keely are teaching Nate about how to command the room and the audience, how Rebecca makes herself bigger. Yeah, like I love it. I love it. It's such a great scene. And it's like in a world where, you know, we as women are taught to be submissive, demure, like small, we're supposed to not take up a lot of space. Here's this woman showing like, I, you know, I'm walking to a room of men, I make myself as big as possible. And sure, she's really tall. <laughs> that helps. But it's not about that. It doesn't matter how tall you are. As women, she's still like, she's probably gets a lot of shit for being so tall. You know, even as beautiful as she is, she probably gets a lot of shit for it. Marina and, and I are both nodding as as taller women here. I'm I'm 5'9". So that's like, I don't think of it as tall, but like the world sees me as tall. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I'm not a problem. So... Yeah. <laughs> 5'11 does definitely... Uh... A foot taller than me. Precisely a foot taller than me. And I, <laughs> I need a Marita foot taller than me cuddle the minute we meet. Just want to... I want you to catch... I want you to catch me like in Dirty Dancing. <laughs> you got it. We can do that. Please, I God, can't make wait. That I cannot wait for this meeting. <laughs> so, okay. So Rebecca makes herself big. And, you know, I'm not talking about her height. She makes herself big and her she commands her presence and she commands the room she's not making herself smaller and sitting in the corner she can be everything just as a man can be everything and then keely i think it's important the journey we see her on she admits she spent her life aligning herself with immature fit footballers and living in the social media space i think her relationship with roy her friendship with rebecca are life-changing for her i think she sees how i think i think she sees how what she has been doing has actually been hurting her and by the end of season two as we see her being highlighted in the magazine as herself in a pivotal moment for a journey. An interesting one of her photos in the magazine is also her taking up more space. She's got her legs spread wide, which is something women do not do. <laughs> right. And, you know, being fucking commanding and not being, not being shot with her boyfriend as like, which no, I think normally Vanity Fair today, which would shoot her with, you know what I mean? But like, it makes me think of, and I'm so sorry, I forget her name, which is like defeats the purpose of making this analogy almost, but um, the wife of the Ukrainian president and the yeah, photo yes. shoot that they did with her, 
being commanding, having her legs spread, and, and just by herself as well. Like it gave me a lot of those similar Keely vibes. So, yeah. and that's a real life, a real life parallel. Yeah, I love that. I, I kind of started thinking a little bit about the writers and what was the difference between the writers. If you wanted to compare writers here, um, Bridget Jones was written by a successful woman, kind of showing again a little bit of my point in the beginning that our forgiveness of this narrative does nothing but lend more value to it. Ted Lasso has worked to create one of the most equal writing rooms in Hollywood, and it does not embrace this narrative. Just, you know, just hiring people of color and women does not magically fix everything. It doesn't make it. Well, now it's okay because a woman said it. Margaret well, Thatcher, that? would, be, Margaret Margaret Thatcher, Thatcher would example. be a great example, yeah, of the Boom. fact that I mean, Phyllis Schlafly in the U.S. And I mean, I mean, some some women like the, you know, like that, the I have the thought of like, well, I, I don't have to work. I'm going to get married. I don't want to work. I don't want to do all these things. And I want someone to take care of me. And they're OK with some of these narratives and being, you know, thinking like a woman is supposed to just be beautiful for her man. And that's her job. And, you know, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. If, you know, I feel and I think that's kind of what what maybe I'm pushing back a little bit in my mind about this idea of this being a joke. If she wanted to just get married and that was what she wanted, who fucking cares? Like, it's not a joke. You know, like, uh, you know, a woman doesn't have to want to have the family and the career and the everything. Every woman can have what she wants to have and it's all okay. We can have comedies that poke fun at certain things that's fine, but it feels like the woman, you know, the, the jokes about being a woman and the things women do is the butt of the joke all the goddamn time. That it just pisses me off. Hallelujah. <laughs> Frankly, it's tiring. It's tiring. Sure. Right. And, and I don't see anything wrong with what Bridget Jones was doing. You know, I wish she was a little bit kinder to the people around her. I wish she was a little more forgiving. I wish her family weren't such complete dick wads if i may they should have been more forgiving of her and what she wanted to do and, and more understanding of her so in conclusion <laughs> i can i can forgive this book for all the things i've said you know that it is it is a product of its time but i do want to question the writers on why so many pro i do want to question the writers of ted lasso on why so many problematic books were chosen like this in the show there are so many less problematic great books out there and obviously we've had several on that you know several that we've talked about even in the show but like was it a thing of recognition like i want to pick the more popular book that to make it something recognizable and so they kind of pick these books that had little inklings towards like i think every problematic book we've had had a little something a little nugget in it that related to ted lasso but then it went off on this kind of thing that was just like what is this telling me what am i supposed to be learning about the show or the people i do kind of question some of these book choices what was the book uh marita if you can remind me the one that was actually in the script that was in place of dharma bums um i'm trying to remember but it was a book about Teddy Roosevelt and his journey up, I believe, the Amazon. Uh, so I can't yeah. think of the exact title of the book, but yes. Yeah. And Teddy Roosevelt obviously has some problematic things going on too. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> well, yeah, that's yeah, a great explore, example. Explorer vibes, right? Like dark, like Dharma bombs. Explorer, and like but also very like. Let me explore Latin appreciate. America and make it mine. Yeah, um, that kind of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Imperialism. Actually, <laughs> imperialism. Yeah. They actually took his statue down at the Museum of Natural History here in New York. So that was a huge deal. Yeah. He was in a whole last movie, wasn't he? Like as a statue. Poor Robin Williams. He didn't deserve that. Mm. Yeah. 
we asked you greyhounds what your best milk puns were. Let's have a look. At Cammy Milky Bar says, I used to follow you guys, but I feel you're losing your way. But I replied to that, maybe you're just feeling a bit blue. Bree nicer. At harhar 3 r 76 says, Oh shoot, I'd butter think of one quick or else I'm sure to get creamed. At DocStewie57 is having problems with her mammary and can't remember any. Back to the podcast. See you later. I think you did really well at trying to keep that positive. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Claws out. We did give a trigger warning at the start, but I would like to give a stronger one for my whole entire piece is about weight and the value it represents in Bridget Jones's diary and Ted Lasso. So we are going to be talking specifically about weight, calories, food control, eating disorders. If you don't think you can cope with that, skip ahead to um, the next section and I'll catch Skip ahead one. to where I talk about generational trauma. Yeah, <laughs> if you can make it through any of it. <laughs> uh, honestly, this was... Uh, this was hard for me to decide to do this because, it, like Andrea said, it was incredibly triggering. But I thought, no, I have to do it. So I've actually taken a little leaf out of Marita's book and I've done a little bit of secondary reading, which I don't normally do. So you're rubbing off on me in, a, in an excellent way. But I'm I'll start... contagious. That's awesome. So pleased. Just teaching me things, and I love it. So what I want to start with is Bridget is entirely focused on her outward appearance. She values herself through the eyes of others, and it made me think back to a time in my life where if I had been forward-thinking enough to keep a diary, it would have been as self-hating as Bridget's. Now, we know Bridget works in an ad agency, yet we never once hear of a project unless it's something that she screws up. I could barely face the start of each chapter where she lists her weight and I did the audiobook and I did the audiobook at one times four uh, speed so it was a lot to, you know to have every start of every child felt like every bloody minute that she was on about her weight and, and when you're triggered by something it can feel like that so I, I'm not necessarily sure that it was like that for everybody but certainly it was too much for me the fact that she lists her weight her calories and what she sees as failures of, as what she's eaten I feel like looking at it from the perspective I have now instead of the one I had at the time is what I'm, I'm seeing here is an attempt to make an eating disorder funny and relatable. And I'm using quotations there. It was just sad to read, and especially the fact that this, is, this has had a movie made out of it. And you get to see the person in the flesh, you know, going on about how their weight is some sort of moral feeling. But it was, it was difficult. But from this perspective... Bridget, like, celebrating the potential fact that she would have a tapeworm. Now, I read that and thought, that's disgraceful. But I think back to that time when if anybody got a stomach flu, you would be like, well, I suppose the upside is I'll lose a bit of weight. That's fucked up, right? Like, that is fucked up. I've I mean, said that. I've said that. Yeah. Well, I lost a few pounds. That's it. So I started off being really judgy about the book, and it wasn't until I sat back and thought, what were you like then? And it, it, yeah, like celebrating a tapeworm, that, that was a difficult part to read. She called another woman that she didn't like a fat whale, which again, I'm not going to sit here and say that my self-hatred at that time didn't come across to any, I, I would never have in my life ever have said anything like that to somebody, but I can't tell you I didn't think it or I wasn't like, 
my own self-hatred projecting onto other people, especially if maybe I didn't like them or something, which is what she does. So that was me being quite vulnerable there, is opening up to the fact that not only was I hurting myself at the time, I very likely was, you know, projecting onto other people. She lamented that she would die fat and alone, like it's some kind of moral failing. Like, that, that was tough. It's like Mary, it's like Mary becoming a librarian. It's, like, it's yeah. a wonderful life. Like, is that really the worst yeah. fate? Like, get yourself some glasses, Bridget. If you're going to be fat and alone, you have to get the glasses so the audience knows you're a loser. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that was sarcasm, by the way, just in case. <laughs> that was full on sarcasm. Like I say, I was originally ready to be even more cutting than I'm being until I look back at some of my own views. But what came first, the chicken or the egg? McMuffin. Did the message in this kind of media and print media, all sorts, did that message cause others and me to view ourselves through Bridget's eyes? And I found a review of a book that I could not afford to buy the full book, I'm going to be fully honest, so I've only got snippets of it, but it is something I would read. A review of Body Shots, Hollywood and the Culture of Eating Disorders by Emily Fox Kales, and that's an Albany, New York State um, piece, and the, the review was by Gohar Siddiqui, and uh, there's a quote from it that I wanted to start with to kind of like put my useless words into some sort of nuance. Hollywood's obsession with surface and the persuasiveness of lean and slender female bodies in these films, Fox Kales argues that Hollywood reinforces cultural beliefs about a mainstream beauty culture which causes many viewers to suspend their critical fa faculties. To suspend their critical faculties. Fuck me. Faculties. Faculties. To just... Parallels? <laughs> <laughs> right and that's a wordplay because we're having parallel moment suspend their critical faculties and surrender to insecurities about their own bodies and the the, the phrase suspend their critical faculties which, which is actually um emily fox kale's words from the book really got into my head because i was like well that makes a lot of sense and i'm going to go into that a bit further about why i think so i also looked up a, a Vogue article, specifically because it had people's personal experiences in it. And um, it was called Did Bridget Jones Make Us Hate Our Bodies by uh, Sophia Verschbau. And it came out in 2021. So it's a relatively new sort of look back. And the quote from this is, and this is where I really feel it. Were this a movie about a woman with low self-esteem learning to love herself, it might have settled differently 20 years on. If that couldn't I couldn't put that any better like if, the, if this had started out with the self-hating and being a journey for Bridget to learn how to love herself then I could have fully got on board with even some of the the stuff at the start with the calories and the weight and all sorts I could have got on board with that but she says it's it's not just Bridget Bridget who's preoccupied with her weight does Mark Darcy played by a thoroughly lovable Colin Firth did you write this Marita have you got a pseudonym <laughs> do they really love her as she is her friends wonder not thinner her friend Shaza asks I thought you said she was thin Laura from the New York office sneers to Daniel when confronted by a heartbroken Bridget so at first I was like maybe we're just seeing this through Bridget's eyes and it's self-hatred and we've got to get on board with that but other people are commenting on her on her weight you know and it's even when she loses the weight people still feel the need to be like oh you look like, fuck you, What's it? stop commenting on people's bodies. Like, just, just don't. 
just stop just, just stop get some help <laughs> I mean even you know the explanation of the book they talk about like how she lost seven she ends up losing 72 total but then gaining 74 like why is this part of the book synopsis it's unnecessary it's just so fucking no no you're absolutely right like I need yeah to, I left I, that part out <laughs> yeah I, I don't blame you and um, we're going to need Marita because by the time I'm done <laughs> I said, that's what's got to me. It wasn't just Bridget who saw something others apparently did not. At points, I could hear the author's voice echoing through all the characters. And I don't know if that was just me, but it felt like an author's issue projecting through every single character. Like, there just can't be that many people preoccupied with one woman's fucking weight. It's just not logical. Can I push um, back? A yeah, bit push back. Yeah. Because it's a diary form here, we could interpret it. And you're not obviously required to be this generous right mm -hmm. but because this is Bridget processing her thoughts and her trauma and she is so obsessed with her own weight she is likely to only include comments about her weight where she's very clearly editing out other people's yeah, yeah that's true I mean it's an unreliable narrator situation as well because you just don't know what what she's hearing and what she's not but like I we thought don't hear you the said she was thin you know yeah, I don't. I don't see how you can misinterpret somebody saying, "I thought you said she was thin." No, no, no. I I agree with you there, but, but yeah, but some of it other circumstances, right? In the broader sort of our own. Well, also though, when you're writing a diary and filling it in, and even if you're putting words to other people, like so and so said this, you know, it's like it is how you remember it. So I do yeah. think, like going back to your unreliable narrative, did she really say, "I thought you said she was thin." Or, you know, was something it to, was yeah. it her interpretation of like a That's look a or a something, you know, like right. yeah. our memories, our memories fuck with us a lot, especially that, when it comes to negative thoughts. That is absolutely true. Yeah. No, I will accept that. I'd said that like I felt like the author was using the characters to sort of shame people for quite frankly, a below average weight for a woman of her size, but like actually take on board some of the sort of unreliable narrator stuff. Yeah, I, I could, get, I'd need to think a bit more. Uh, but I know it affected me as I compared and contrasted Bridget's weight, height, calorie intake with my own and height only in the movie because we don't get our height in the book. Like we're looking at the fact that being fat is a moral failing, but at one point I ate cereal for breakfast and cereal for lunch and a dinner because Kellogg's took advantage of special the diet culture, special K diet, right? <laughs> How's that not a fucking moral feeling? Yeah, Making me is... special K in the morning and for uh, make that Capitalism. Make sense. Yeah, exactly. Like they basically took advantage of a problem that the media kind of fucking created in the first place. And apparently the moral feeling is being fat, not that bullshit. But okay, that's a different conversation. But I wanted to see if others felt like me, and I want to get your perspectives as well. But I'll just give you some perspectives of the people from this Vogue article. And again, trigger warning. Bridget's stats matched mine in high school, which was around the time I started starving myself. How many times I had watched this movie as a teenager internalized that my body needed fixing too. As a teenager, the weight storyline in the movie made me feel like I was already failing at what it meant to be a woman who was put together, says Jess Kent Johnson, a 35-year-old software engineer. So she's in her age range. Somebody else says, I was 16 and weighed the same amount as a 32-year-old character. And if that weight was clearly problematic, 
if I couldn't keep my weight under control, did that mean I was also destined to be a hapless, awkward singleton who needed a miracle of a generous Mark Darcy type to validate my existence? Fucking could not have put that better. Uh, another says I can confidently say that the years of destroyed self-worth I've experienced due to my body are thanks to the culture and media of the early 2000s, 90s as well, I can contest to. There's, there's so many that I could keep going. But basically, they all are along the same lines of it's not till later I thought of this. And yes, this was a fucking problem for me. So I'd like to take a break just to see how everybody else felt about Bridget Jones the first time they read it or so. So when I was listening, when I was listening to the audiobook and she's stating her weight and then she like goes on and starts talking about it later and I was like wait I have to go back what was that weight again yeah <laughs> um, right. and and like you said I don't think they really got on about her height but you know making assumptions from and I don't recall maybe it was mentioned but she wasn't like super tall or super short or anything she seemed kind of average. like average yeah, average height and the thing is like yeah some of those readers said um that they weighed that in high school and that was very similar to my weight in high school but I'm 5'9 so on my build it was very small and if I had been exposed to this book or this film at that age I might have had a different take on my weight. Now, don't get me wrong. I would not put, like, because you started at the beginning as, like, did Bridget Jones cause us to, like, you know. Maybe not like, specifically, not, but that culture of media. like Not in and of itself, but it definitely didn't help, I, I don't think. That's just thank me. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah, and I, I think, as I mean, as someone who I've struggled with my weight my whole life, um, is a lot of it is... Um, hormone based that it's where it started my weight issues and I mean obviously I'm not saying that that's the only thing I I like chocolate a little too much that's all be honest that's not a thing that's not a thing there's no such thing as too much (laughs) it's actually Um, it's a food group it is one of the food groups and it's important and so um yeah I found it very triggering I have felt very much like the fact that I'm overweight. Yeah. Is it like you said, it's a moral failing. It's not just like, oh, you look funny. No, you're actually a horrible person. And how dare you exist in this world with your Mm -hmm. extra weight? Like you're Mm -hmm. lazy, you're fat, you're blah, 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 blah. And, and yeah, and that fucking sucks. And that is hard thing to get over. And it, it's like, it's yeah. I, and I think, and again, I, I think you're right. I think that there are probably some things, maybe you, Michaela, you and me have a similar, um, had gone through some similar things about our weight in our life. Hearing that like that was extremely triggering. And so like, I think that did kind of prevent me from like, I almost kind of had to put a wall up because I was just like, I cannot even deal with this. Like, this brought, is not I even, mean, like I, to be completely vulnerable, I found myself while like doing this and we're like, for context, if you're listening, we do this on Zoom, we can see each other. I am glancing at my picture way more than I ever would right. if I hadn't, you know, that, that's what we mean by triggering. Triggering isn't always having, you know, a meltdown, which I have I have had for triggers and things, but triggering can just be reintroducing bad thoughts that you manage to tell to fuck off. And that's what I've noticed yeah. is like, I'm constantly like looking, going, uh, and then I have to keep catching myself going, who the fuck cares? So yeah, mm-hmm. I do, and I have a dodgy thyroid as well. So 
it's like fighting. I, I have a dodgy thyroid and I like chips. I'm not. I'm like you, Andrea. Like I, I like to eat. I'm like Jack Black and School of Rock. Why? Why don't you go on a diet? Because I like to eat, right? Because <laughs> I like food. It's delicious. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking great. <laughs> Maria, did you have any experiences with it? Yeah, and again, mine are a little bit different because. So, when this movie came out, I I think. Hollywood made a big deal of Renee Zellweger putting on weight to be 30 pounds apparently but the thing is is in the context rom-coms have never been my genre right and I actually really enjoyed this movie once again but beyond (laughs) that she was more normal and relatable than other protagonists in romantic comedies coming out of Hollywood at that time right Mm -hmm. she was a hot mess in a way that was still lovable and Mm -hmm. I your points are absolutely valid and I absolutely see what that concern is but as a product of that time she was almost a revelation in some cases because she looked fucking normal right she was concerned about her weight and I think society's conditioned us all to be in a way that's unhealthy right but she was lovable much more explicitly in the movie and the book just as she was and so I absolutely see the problems and the concerns that you have but at the time, she was a, sadly a step forward from what we were seeing in other portrayals in the genre. It's good to get that perspective, though. And I think Rainey uh, Zellweger brought a certain charm to her that the book lacked for me. Um, mm. You know, like certainly when you watch, I was, it's much easier to watch the movie than it, it was to listen to the book. So I, I do get where you're coming from with, with that. You know, I think if it wasn't for my own personal issues and triggers, then I could probably see past it and and get that. So I do appreciate getting to sort of see every. Thanks for sharing, everyone. That I know it's a, t- a sensitive subject, but there is an argument to be made for the media influence us and therefore encouraging to us to view ourselves through the eyes of others. And I wanted to look at some of the things that we celebrate the women of Ted Lasso for. First and foremost, though, I want to make the point that I'm not going to be commenting on the weight or dress size of any of the cast. Whether Ted Lasso is representative of all women's bodies is a different conversation and honestly one that I would find hard to have um, without a lot of thought and I don't want to scrutinise anybody's bodies so that's not where this is going. But I will say I cannot recall of one fat joke in the series which for a sitcom, even the most progressive, is rare. Now if I'm wrong, correct me because I might be wrong Uh, and if you're listening to this and I'm wrong, tweet us because I would like to be corrected but I cannot think of one single fat joke and I mean I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Parks and Rec, fat jokes you know what I mean and again as a moral feeling so I was just going to make a very stupid pun and say that technically two percent milk is a fat joke (laughs) goodbye I needed that I needed that Marita won Marita won the show yeah okay fair enough I needed that so I just did um, a Google fat jokes, Ted Lasso. Mm-hmm. And the only things that come up, one is which I'm going to talk about. So I won't, I won't right, share that one yet. But the other one was Rebecca's, are you mad? Pandas are fat and lazy. So that's, that... oh, and she does call George fat. So I am actually wrong, but that's when she's in her bitch era. You know, she said she calls George <laughs> Rebecca fat bitch flat, era. Yeah, it was this her bitch era. But yeah, you're right. She does. Call but I mean, fat. that's a panda. Yeah, <laughs> but it is still saying that that's a negative. 
And I mean, being fat and lazy as a panda is not a fucking bad thing. I watch a lot of panda videos. They get me through some shit. So thank you, lazy fat pandas. I like the pandas <laughs> that like knock over the computers yeah, just, and stuff. Yeah, and just fall down the fucking hill. Like they're just like tired of life. So they just fall over and roll down the hill. So relatable. Thank you, pandas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to finish up by stating things in which I, which I kind of got from first meeting the women of Ted Lasso, and I'd also love to hear yours if you have any. Starting with Rebecca, even before and after her sort of turnaround, she's confident, she's assertive, she knows what she wants, and she goes to get what she wants. She doesn't take shit from George, who's like a mis- misogynistic twat. She takes no shit from him and like completely undermines my point because she does call him fat. So Keely is, Keely's confident in herself. Like when she says to Ted, I look fat, you know, like when she's dressed as a lion and she's like, I look fucking insane. Um, she's confident and she wants to choose between being a lion or a panda. It doesn't involve what the men in her life think about. It's, it's she goes after what she wants. Um, Dr. Sharon is assertive in herself. Um, she is confident in her abilities. She's kind. Uh, Jane is probably most like Bridget in the sense that she's driven by insecurity. And I'm not saying she's exactly like Bridget. She's probably less likable than Bridget, but she certainly is driven by insecurity. Me- I like Jane better than Bridget. <laughs> I yeah. do. I don't know. There's something about Jane that like I just find intriguing she'd be good in a night out but after that you'd just be like well you fuck off yeah I don't know know. I don't know I like I guess it's not fair for me because we don't have as much development in her character as the other ones but there's there's just something about Jane that makes me want to know more about her yeah there's a lack in three-dimensionality there's a reason somebody's that insecure right like nobody's that insecure for no reason me literal queen in charge, runs the bar, but she's still nurturing. Like she nurtures Ted when she sticks up for him when everybody's like wanker and she's like, give him a chance. She nurtures the pub boys when he wants to wreck the place and she, you know, kind of sternly looks at him. She's fully in charge. It's like that mother role, but without the, the tropes of a mother, if, if you know what I mean in that. And then we have Nora, who has the 90s style and the, the fact that she wears the plaid shirt and the music that she has introduced to is Alanis Morissette, but she doesn't have the 90s shit that we're talking about right now. There is no, absolutely no mention about her appearance. She doesn't bring it up. She's not insecure. She's feminist. She's cocky, and I love it. And I think Nora's probably the best representation of what we're talking about right now because she celebrates the era that caused all these problems in the first place. I think we could almost even say that, like, the even though we do have two examples of fat being used as a negative in Ted Lasso, again, we've all said the fat joke, you know, like we've all used weight Mm -hmm. as something derogatory towards another person. You don't like the person for some reason. They're ugly. They're Mm -hmm. this, they're too, they're too thin. They're skinny. They're twig. They're fat. They're, you know, Mm -hmm. like we have all these weight appearance based insults that we throw around Mm -hmm. when we don't like someone for something that has nothing to do with their weight and they are early in rebecca's arc right yes yes Mm -hmm. yes when she's supposed it's yeah it's Mm -hmm. human i was just because you understand it can be used as a character thing to when you want to show somebody as a dick so you can show them being fat phobic transphobic racist and stuff but 
like there was a whole episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine then it just felt like the writer's room had went give us as many fat jokes as you can and we'll put, put every fucking one of them in the episodes and I skip that episode every time on my rewatch because it just is kind of pathetic to watch so I hopefully that's the, the direction we're moving in now and um, but I fully agree yeah I'm not going to sit here and say I haven't I haven't done it because I have the key is a diverse writer's room though right because if yep. you have people of different heights weights backgrounds races orientations etc you're gonna have someone go "Mm, no not so much with that one right absolutely absolutely we asked you greyhounds whose diary from ted lasso would you read at lil underscore baquette says sharon she knows things i want to know things also she's awesome a rebel and funny so it'd be a great read Pink Lasso Boxes says, other than obvious answers like Ted or Rebecca, I would love to see the diary of Trent Krim. At Mattusing Panda says, Jan Mass will have a very accurate diary. At Pink Lasso Boxes also says, I bet Paul from the pub would have a very detailed, thoughtful diary. I would love to see what he wrote about the adventures of the Beard After Hours episode. At Glowy Sweet Fab says, that's a tough question, but Dr. Sharon, because she keeps to herself, but I would love to learn more about her. At Lace84 says, ooh, I can't choose between Rebecca, Keely and Roy. Keely's would just be straight entertaining, but R&R definitely have some things below the surface. At Skizix underscore 83 says, Colin or Jan Mass? I'd like to know Jan's straightforward and blunt thoughts. At Harhar3R76 says, Coachbeard's Diary would be a fantastic read, but also The Sexy Siren's Diary. Shoot, just an inventory of list of all the pants she'd kept would be entertaining. Back to the podcast. Okay, well that was me. Thank you for indulging my rage. I'm going to transfer over to Bex now. Are you lightening us up or are you... Um, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say lightening it up. Generational trauma. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't think I'm, I'm going to, I'm not like solely raging against the book, but I do want to focus on this sort of negative aspect that we have picked out of the book and look at how it does in some ways manifest itself in the show Ted Lasso. And I think what's interesting is that the characters that we've talked about and the core characters in our show aren't those characters. It is more of a side character uh, arc that I'm going to be talking about. So I'll start I'll start us out with the other quote that uh, references the word fat anyway. Deborah, Oh, what a chubby baby. Rebecca, congratulations, mother. You just fat shamed a baby to tears. So I'll come back to that in a minute. But, you know, when we talk about Ted Lasso, there's a lot that's said on the role of fathers in the lives of the characters but I want to look at mothers today specifically mothers in the roles that they play in sort of this like this generational body shaming generational trauma of how we look at our bodies it's not to say that all the blame goes on mothers and in fact where do mothers get it I'll sum it up with two words well I guess three if I'm gonna say and right patriarchy and capitalism so like mother like daughter toxic relationships i'm going to talk about rebecca's mother deborah fun fact not related to this relationship between the two of them but my stepmother's name is deborah and my name is rebecca (laughs) so (laughs) wow this is just 
Interestingly, wow. though, more of my body image issues will have come from my actual mother who has a different name. So, so yeah, let's get into Ted Lasso first. Then we're going to look at, at Bridget Jones and then I'll, I'll pull them together at the end. So Deborah has a, a very toxic, it's not all about weight either, right? It's about relationships and weight and how those link together. So Deborah had a toxic relationship with her husband. She's always leaving him. Like so much so that when she comes in and tells Rebecca that she's left him, Rebecca just like rolls her eyes. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay, yep, you've done it a million times before, whatever. Like this has clearly happened so often, and and I think Rebecca's response with the eye roll is really just a way to allow her to remain emotionally disinvested. I, I use that gif like all the time. Thank you for that that moment, um, Hannah Waddingham, because that gif is perfect for a lot of things. Yeah, the, it's just like the hardest eye roll ever. But it is, I think, a defense mechanism so that Rebecca doesn't have to feel in the middle of her parents' relationship in that in that regard. You know, we learn in the show that Rebecca's father cheated on her mother, not just the one time that Rebecca saw, uh, but various times throughout the course of the marriage. Rebecca, though, on the other hand, she leaves Rupert when she learns that he's cheated on her. So this is a break. Unfortunately, though, we do learn that just like with her father, Rupert had done this multiple times. This just happened to be the time that she that Rebecca found out. And I'm going to say we assume that she didn't know about it beforehand simply because of the conversation she had with Higgins and how she was like, oh, you always had lunch with me so that Rupert could like meet up with all those girls or other women. But I think she uses the word girls. That's one that gets me. Girls for I women. I think it's to highlight how much younger he goes. Like, they're, they're like 30 years as junior. Like, with the girls it's true. Kids. Yeah, there is a big age difference between him and them. I'm not, as a blanket statement, I don't have any issue with big age gaps, but the age gap just... power imbalance with Rupert yeah because he's got shit ton of money in there so yeah I think that's if I ever it. ranted to you guys about girls about how I, I will not read a book with yeah. girl in the title have I ranted about that yeah <laughs> I, I find myself saying it and then going oh no no that. I don't I don't recall you saying that like just because it has remember. girl in the title you won't you won't read it just if it has girl in the title i mean i've read books with girl in the title but it's like most of the like popular girl books are about it's this it has girl in the title gone girl whatever right girl with and the dragon she's tattoo. been murdered yeah she's been murdered and you know like it, like that just seems to be like a common like girl in the title she's been murdered and the whole thing is about and it's just kind of gross gotcha doesn't pass the like when someone the basement yeah there's that too but just like this is just yeah like you could just tell she's going to be denied agency within the story yeah exactly and Mm -hmm. so i just like when someone suggests a book to me with girl in the title i have a visceral initial like no i'm not reading that book (laughs) sorry fair enough fair enough i do think though that you know looking at deborah's relationship with her husband and then rebecca actually leaving rupert not ignoring his infidelity that is her personal rejection of the relationship dynamic between her own parents and so there's a lot of times we watch our parents and we copy the same things that they do and there's a lot of times where we watch our parents and we blatantly reject it and 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 try and change things but it's interesting that in both of these situations that the men were 
were cheating on their wives in in this situation. I do think though that Rebecca's choice yeah, this is kind of what kind of what I was saying, like Rebecca's choice in men likely stemmed from the expectations set for her from her mother and and others in her family social circle, which is something we'll get to with Bridget as well, whether she recognized them or not, right? I don't think it's quite as in your face as with Bridget Jones, like you need to marry this person because they have money or they look handsome or they're this and that. But it's something that you sort of internalize just by the things and the people that you're exposed to throughout your life. The relationship that Deborah has with her husband not only influences Rebecca's relationship with men, especially Rupert, but also has a negative impact on the relationship between the two women, which you know, Rebecca and her mother, which we see in No Weddings and a Funeral. When Rebecca finally confronts Deborah about her father and learns the truth that Deborah knew all along. So today is my quoting day, I guess. After she learns this, Rebecca says, then I hate you too. I hate you for letting him treat you like that. And they have a, a back and forth for a little bit. And then Deborah says, you know, I'm actually glad to hear that you hate me. All these years, I've thought you didn't feel anything for me. I'll take your anger over your indifference any day. What a line, right? I, I I love that. And I honestly, I don't recall any episodes or instances of Rebecca saying anything negative about Rebecca's appearance, whether it's her weight, her clothing, anything else. But I will say, going back to that quote that I started off the section with, just the fact that Rebecca interprets Deborah's comment about baby Diana being a chubby baby as fat shaming suggest that there might have been something there at one point you know that's that's yeah, how I interpreted that at some point you'd made a point which was valid when we were talking before recording that yeah chubby is like surely what you want for a baby <laughs> you know chubby yeah, co- should be a compliment yeah. for a baby right yeah a baby should be chubby that's like not that's not fat shaming right I don't see like oh what a chubby baby is like oh yay what a healthy baby who's like flourishing yes. yeah yeah and But that's not how Rebecca interprets it. And so I think there, there's something there with that. Next, I'm going to jump over to Bridget Jones's diary. And, you know, as we've talked about, she focuses on two things primarily throughout her life, her love life and her weight. And I would say focus is being gentle, as being really generous here. Obsessed right? over, yeah. Yeah, that's literally what I have here. Yeah. No, I think that's, you're exactly right. Obsess over is is exactly what I was thinking of. You know, every chapter starting out, her weight, how many calories, how much alcohol, how many cigarettes, blah, blah. It's like a list of statistics. And you know what? I have tracked the food that I've eaten. I've tracked the exercise that I've gotten. And that's fine, but I'm not turning it into a book (laughs) for others to read. Or like, you might just be tracking it for your health reasons. You're not tracking it and then saying, you're a fat bitch do you know what I mean like yeah exactly there's not a follow-up with like how dare you you know um VG VG <laughs> oh. oh kill me now the I, whole I V shook, listen I only heard the word V as an abbreviation for very from Dan Howell from um Dan and Phil they're YouTubers <laughs> I don't know if anyone's oh, yeah, familiar Dan and Phil, yeah yeah mm-hmm. uh, and he'd be like specifically be Londoner thing yeah specifically which is funny because well well it's not phil who says v it was dan um and i was gonna say because phil's from the north dan i don't know whether he's from manchester or london or what but i think he's from manchester blah 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 ask him to say ratatouille and then you'll know if he's from manchester or not (laughs) that's 
I'll have to go back and watch the videos because I feel like they must have at some point. The focus on Bridget's appearance could, of course, have come from society in general. It's not just from her mother, but it does definitely come from her mother, whose name is Gemma. And I'll bring that back later because Gemma is constantly commenting on Bridget's weight and her appearance, specifically in certain articles of clothing, right? Like the it was a green dress at the beginning, like, oh, that doesn't suit you. That's not your color. It doesn't fit your right kind of thing. And it's like, was that when she was coming and they were trying to set her up with Mark Darcy? So they like, didn't tell her they were going to set her up, but then expected her to dress up like she was getting set up, which is like a very mum thing, right? Uh, you know, when it comes to toxic relationships, we get an interesting situation with Gemma in that she does actually leave her husband, uh, but it's not due to infidelity in this case, right? Like, Rebecca's mother is always like, oh, I'm leaving him. Duh. And it has to do with how she's treated, but also probably the cheating. With Gemma, it's it's different. Like, at first, I sympathized with her. You know, she felt neglected. Like, she was only existing to serve her husband. And she never had the chance to live her own life to do it for herself. And so I was like, yeah, you know, I get that. You You were kind of put into this role through marriage and then becoming a mother and so on. And now you're like, what do I do with myself? This whole thing where she leaves him anyway, that's then becomes a scandal. It's not just something she can do because, you know, it's time that she moved on. It's a scandal. And that's like that upper class society thing, right? Church, church stuff as well, I think. Cause oh. Like big church, like local village church area. So everybody talks, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I I looked at, at Gemma's character as um, like going to the Pride and Prejudice references that they're pulling out. That she was kind of like the worst of both Mrs. Bennett and Lydia in one in in terms of her 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 portrayal in the book mm. right yeah because i mean mrs bennett was a mess <laughs> i have a whole i can go on a whole tangent about the bennett parents and and their parenting skills um, <laughs> i actually did a podcast episode why do we read this on pride and prejudice with my four sisters so you can take a listen to that and Hear our opinions on sisters, men, and parents. <laughs> I have to say, do you do you all cast yourself as Lizzie Bennett, or does someone else take one of the other roles? Um, we have a segment in there where we talk about who we think is each one, and I don't think I don't <laughs> That's think <a> brutal. <laughs> well, what becomes brutal is when we call one of the other ones Lydia. <laughs> oh yeah! Oh yeah! <laughs> I it's all it's all fun and games until you label one of your sisters the Lydia. But I also, as a part of my other podcast, uh, Big Reputations, did an apology, like a an episode in which I sympathize with Lydia Bennett and her position and role in society. So I don't think she's as bad of a character as she is, like plainly portrayed um, in yeah, that. Yeah, I, I agree. So. Absolutely. I could talk about Pride and Prejudice all day, but I'm trying not to because I know I've got two English degrees and I've never read it. So judge me. Go judge me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I genuinely think you would enjoy it. Do it's, it. Do you? I, I'm I, I don't think you'd love it. Um, I, just, I like I th- romance as a B plot, watch, but when it's an A plot, I'm not Watch really... the mini series. Right. Okay. I'll do that. Is Colin Firth in that? Yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, and it was like a BBC thing. So it's. Yeah. it's from over there anyway um 
sorry. Wait, what? Wait, what? I was like, it's from over there. No, I I just reminded her that you are Scottish, not English. Yeah, 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 but it's it's still like close enough. (laughs) It's not America. Okay, that's (laughs) all we need. (laughs) (laughs) Michaela and the Ugly Americans. (laughs) No, we're renaming the podcast. No, Bridget. Similar to Rebecca, I think, is never really confident in her relationships, but this is due to something different. Like for Rebecca, I think it stems from having seen her father be unfaithful and always sort of having that fear lingering in the back of her, right? Like, oh, this is just what men do kind of thing. Like if even someone like my father could do that, then anyone is fair game. For Bridget, I think a lot of it has to do with the body shaming that she receives from her mother in society. But also, again, just like with Rebecca, observing this dynamic between her parents over the years and seeing, you know, oh, I thought this was like an ideal marriage. And now I'm seeing that it's like falling apart at this point, right? Like you you expect that to last forever. I don't know. As a child with divorce, I was like, ah relationship like I wasn't even going to get married for the longest time because I was like what is what's the difference right but I did it anyway (laughs) Bridget like her mother who dates Julio after leaving her husband it's Julio in the book I believe it they recharacterized that I think they made him Julian in the movie didn't they and they certainly uh, they didn't make him like Mediterranean (laughs) (laughs) yes which I actually thought was an improvement because they make him such a caricature that removing the opportunity to uh, making him a caricature of a white guy, I thought was way better. And I say white, like, no, I I mean, waspy. Uh, is waspy a term you get in? Yeah. In, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But I, I do think because of Bridget's insecurities, she's afraid to be in a positive relationship in case it fails. And that is very similar to Rebecca in that sense. So to connect them, right, the trauma that stems from mother-daughter relationships stems from the need for survival. And this is fucked up, but hear me out, right? Uh, The strategies that women use to ensure security and autonomy within the bounds of sex-based oppression, this is something that's known to scholars as the patriarchal bargain, which is like understanding our own mothers and their mothers and so on back and back and back. And how they were oppressed and had to fight for survival. That's something that we can use to help us look at the way that they treat us. So how do our mothers treat us? How were they treated? How was that passed down before? And again, ties back to the patriarchy. It's it's so they refer to it as the patriarchal bargain. Hella relatable. <laughs> so with examples from these two texts, Deborah and Gemma, they choose not to leave their husbands even when they're unhappy or have been mistreated. And they do this for their daughters, like earlier on in their marriage. Deborah and Gemma do both leave their husbands for varying amounts of time once their daughters are grown. But correct me if I'm wrong, like Gemma went back at the end, right? Uh, In the movie, yes. In the book, it's unclear because she's sleeping in the bed with him at the time. But she also is willing to entertain the affections of Julio when he shows up right at the end. Right. So I think it's more ambiguous in the Okay. In the book. Okay, that's uh, fair. It's Jim Broadbent, Broadbent in the movie, and he's just so lovable yeah. in the movie. He is. He's such a cutie. But I do think that returning to 
these male figures, like a secure male figure, is uh, a survival tactic to some degree. Again, speaking generationally and in terms of the careers, like we know that Gemma never had her own career and her own life and all of this. And even with Deborah, we don't get like, oh, she was doing this thing that she was truly passionate about. She just existed. Commenting on their daughter's appearance, this is something that we only see directly in Bridget Jones's diary, but again, I think implied from uh, Rebecca's comment about fat shaming the baby, and this is used as a way to help their daughters fit in with society, right? They don't want their daughters to be bullied by society, to be targeted by society, and so they do it. Because they know that they love their daughters and they're trying to do it as a way to protect the commenting on their daughter's failed relationships as a way to ensure their daughter's happiness, not recognizing that there are other ways to find happiness besides a man. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> and then if we take these, these characters now and we talk about the idea of breaking the chain, like stopping this generational passing down of all this trauma. I don't see Bridget doing this in the book. I mean, maybe it happens in one of the sequels. I don't know. I don't think I can bring myself to read them. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I know she ends the book with the good guy. But, like, how healthy is that relationship? Is she actually in a better mental place? Or is she just in a place where, like, a guy is making her happy so she's with him? And um, my understanding from the brief, like, glimpses I did for the sequels is that they definitely have a lot of issues over the course of the, the other novels. They had to for there to be sequels, right? Like, you have to split them up and get them back together and... And then kill him. Have a oh, baby. Spoiler or... alert. Yeah. Spoiler alert. He definitely dies in one of them. Does he? <laughs> yeah. I, I, never got that. I never got yeah. that far. Yeah, he dies. Fuck me. <laughs> I never got that far. Yeah. I, like I, I said, mean... I just read plot summaries, so I don't know the circumstances behind it, but it's after, it's right after the birth of their second child, so. Oh. <laughs> but Rebecca did leave Rupert for good, and she's not going back. Like, this is the big difference. Like, her, sure, her story's not over, but, like, it's only going to move forward. Whether she ends up with Ted, or she ends up with Sam... Or she ends up just with herself. We didn't have a pause moment for the Sam one for some, yeah. I don't know, glowing sparkle effect. <laughs> I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be neutral. Understood. Yeah. I'm trying to be neutral. <laughs> I can tell by your posture that you're not. You're oh, definitely yeah. biased. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I would also be very happy with her just ending up by herself at the end. None of those things, though is as important as the fact that she is moving forward that she is not going to look back there's not going to be that hesitation there's not going to be that beating herself up sure she might have slips and insecurities she's human she's not infallible and that's natural but she is only going to move forward i think the thing with her as well is she says she doesn't want to be alone but she doesn't not want to be alone enough that she'll go to rupert whereas i think bridget doesn't want to be alone enough that she'll go to daniel who's clearly a complete and utter wanker from the start not going to hear an argument from me <laughs> wanker, wanker, wanker. <laughs> and then just another comment because this was another direction i thought about going but i ended up focusing more on the mother-daughter pairings was that like 
Deborah would have been just a little bit older than Bridget in the 90s. I'm just using that actress Harriet Walters' age now. But she would have been in her 40s when Bridget Jones was in her 30s in the, the 90s there. Um, so like I I put them in that same category, that same generation of having all this weight stuff thrown at them, but also not having the the environment, which I think we have a lot better today, which is where women lift up other women, right? Before you could yes. be the only woman who did X, Y, or Z. And so you had to fight against so you could be that woman. Whereas now we lift each other up and say, hey, I did this. Come join me, right? Come come up with me and, and sort of helping out in that section, uh, in that area. We asked you, Greyhounds, who would be the most unreliable narrator of their life in Ted Lasso? At... Lil underscore baguette said, Rupert Mannion, he'd be the new Salal and it would be glorious, smirks. At 25 said, I fear we must nominate Ted. Despite his work-related successes, he still struggles with how he sees himself as a father, ex-husband. I can't compact it, but I think his fear of being a failure at those things started when he took his father's death a little bit personally. At Errols of Risk 1 said, Rupert, delusions of grandeur, or Ted, fails to see his own impact and decenters himself too much. Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club to join in the fun. So that's my section on mothers and daughters and the trauma that gets passed down from one generation to the next. But I think we we wanted to end this on a more positive note, yeah? <laughs> yes. Well, I, do, I do just want to throw in, like, I think talk about trigger on top of trigger that's like a that was like a secondary trigger because like I can't tell you how many people older people when my husband died have like since my husband have passed like within within months was just like so you know like you're gonna get married you know when are you gonna get married again who you know who I'm just like are you fucking kidding me Holy like shit. if I if I decide to stay single now for the rest of my life that is like that's my choice I honestly think it's okay to just punch people sometimes. Oh my, oh my god. Like I literally this book for me was just like a trigger on top of a trigger on top of a trigger on top of a trigger. Like <laughs> the, the mother so, stuff and the weight for me. That, but yeah, like like what, it was the talk? started with the weight. The weight stuff was deeper for me, but then like there's this like secondary because I kind of people ask me, I just kind of roll my like that is a thing that I'm just like, oh fuck you. Like I'm gonna you do, should, you, you know, like say. I'm gonna do what I want. She's yeah. Just saying, no, I'm not getting married again, but I'm going to have loads of sex with the random strangers. Is that okay with you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm on <laughs> Tinder and I'm just going to just, and I plan on having 50 cats and it's going to be <laughs> fucking great. Cat ladies rule. I think we're going to lighten the mood now. And I think we're all maybe going to learn something because Marita has a more positive view for us. I don't even know if it's well yes it's more positive I'm not ragey certainly um it's certainly more measured uh and by all means I don't mean to minimize your feelings because they're valid no and we don't take it that way no no but I'm just gonna throw in a different view and maybe contextualize this a more a, a little bit more and then maybe have a little bit of fun with it at the end but I think it's really important to remember that Bridget Jones diary doesn't exist in a vacuum it draws very deliberately on some really specific books in the literary canons some of those are more obvious than others and it fits very clearly in a period of time that was a very specific place kind of in feminism and so we'll talk a little bit about that too 
most obviously, and Bex mentioned this earlier, the plot parallels Pride and Prejudice, and we will talk more about Pride and Prejudice shortly. But there was another book within the history of feminism, more more recently, 20th century feminism, that was in its time, it came out in 1973, it was a huge cultural phenomenon, and it was super controversial. And it's Fear of Flying by Erica Jong, and I know I've talked to uh, y'all about it a little bit, but has anyone else read that? I have not. Okay, so you've read it. Andrea, so we're not going to spend a huge amount of time on it because I don't want to get too far away from Ted Lasso, but I think it's important because it does help contextualize Bridget Jones in general. And so the reason I even got to reading Fair of Flying, because I hadn't read it before, but of course I, you know, do way too much work. I'm the, the nerd of the book club, <laughs> which is saying something because y'all are nerds too. Yeah, I was going to um, say, which is saying something because this is a book club about a TV <laughs> show. <laughs> it doesn't get much nerdier than that, but you you take it next level and we love it. So the, the paper that led me to read this book is called From a Woman's Right to Choose to a Woman's Right to Choose, The Commodification of Feminism and the Politics of Choice from Fear of Flying to Bridget Jones' Diary. And it's by Megan Barrett, who's at City College of Technology, CUNY, right? Uh, and it's in the journal Assuming Gender. I'm not going to go a whole bunch into her arguments because I think that's going to get us off track, but it did lead me to read this book, which came out in 1973. And it's got really when you read it so much in common with Bridget Jones it's this first person fictional narrative uh the main character in it is Isadora Wing and in it she goes to Vienna with her husband for an academic conference uh her husband is a psychoanalyst and ends up leaving him to travel with another man through Europe in pursuit of what she calls a zipless fuck right so this is great concept she has that is her platonic ideal of a sexual encounter with someone that is attachment free one time purely for sexual pleasure right and now now you're kind of like hey that's cool but in 1973 this was a big fucking deal right yeah absolutely um, that's quite and the no and the novel is controversial for a lot of reasons but in particular it is very frank and and very explicit in its discussion of and depiction of sex and and there's a lot of it in the novel and it's from the point of view of a woman it even goes so far as to talk about how much damage was done, it implies how much damage was done, for example, by, you know, D.H. Lawrence, and when she learned about orgasms from Lady Chatterley's lover, and did it ever occur to her that Lady Chatterley was a man, right? <laughs> I mean, written by a man. But the reason I'm bringing up here is that if you read it and really go through it, there's so much of the seeds of Bridget Jones in this novel. Right. So it's first person. It's confessional. It's very frank. It includes this sort of unfiltered sort of thoughts like the stuff we're not used to sharing. It's a it's a different plot. <laughs> Absolutely. But it has a lot of elements in common. She's an unreliable narrator. She even sort of breaks the fourth wall and admits as much during part of the book. She's dissatisfied and struggling with what society expects from her as a woman. She struggles to feel comfortable with her weight. It's not as pervasive through the book as it is with Bridget Jones, but she definitely talks about how she feels 10 pounds overweight, how much her weight bothers her. She's had an eating disorder in the past. To the extent where she has a pregnancy scare, which Bridget has, and in both cases, they're farcical. Like, no one would actually think they were pregnant unless they were just being paranoid, right? It happens in both books. So I'm going to read a few quotes, and the voice is definitely different than Bridget's, but you could absolutely contextualize these within Bridget Jones' diaries, but they're from Fear of Flying. So one of them is, I meet a guy and any other self-respecting woman would automatically run miles from, and I managed to find something endearing about all his questionable characteristics, something rivetingly attractive about his manias. That is absolutely Bridget and Daniel Cleaver, right? That is wow. the whole yeah. attraction there. She says, when other writers suffer, it is epic or cosmic or avant-garde, but when I suffer, it's slapstick. 
And I think that's true too. Like Bridget's problems are very first worldy, like right, very middle upper class, and they're always ridiculous. And then there's this other thing that Bridget does that shows up here where the character in Fear of Flying does indeed have fear of flying, both metaphorically, but also literally. She's afraid of air travel. Every time we hit an air pocket and the plane dropped about 500 feet, leaving my stomach in my mouth, I vowed to give up sex, bacon, and air travel if I ever made it back to terra firma in one piece, right? And Bridget is constantly making these like promises that she has no intention keeping bacon? and so i'm bacon <laughs> bacon i'm not giving up bacon <laughs> nah, the plane can go down i'm keeping bacon <laughs> But the reason I'm bringing up this book is because it reads so much like Bridget Jones' predecessor from the previous generation. So Fear of Flying is very much anchored in second wave feminism, right? We had the first wave of feminism, and this is going to be a very reductive discussion of the history of feminism. It's too complicated to get out in a segment. But we have first wave feminism, which this overarching theme was getting the vote and getting rid of legal impediments to having women be people, right? And then we move into second wave feminism, which sort of moves off into a much broader number of topics and starts to get into more individual rather than collective action. And so Fear of Flying is very much anchored in that second wave feminism, right? Women leaving their marriages because they're sick of society's sort of expectations for them, uh, things like that. Bridget Jones, in the same way, is very much anchored in post-feminism, where people are sort of looking at the ways, you see it referred to a lot as the way the feminist movement failed, in that women were able to go out and have choice and do the things they wanted, but they're still like stuck doing all the fucking housework, right? I don't see that as a failure of the feminist movement so much as society to not fuck up, but you get the general sense of where we're at with Bridget Jones in that post-feminist sort of part of history. And so it's like this, everything old is new again. It's the same overarching problems, but just a different context. Look, Bridget Jones' diary is really fear of flying with the, the updated content, context. I want to pause really quickly here and acknowledge that I'm talking about different facets of feminism, but the fa feminism I'm discussing is really of a kind that is primarily available to only specific kinds of women, meaning middle and upper class white women primarily. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's important. Um, but that is the context that both of these novels came out of. So when we look at Bridget's mom, and I'm really glad you talked about this generational trauma, she leaves her husband after she doesn't read these second wave feminist texts early in life, right? She reads them at that time in the novel, right? She reads uh, Betty Friedan, I think The Feminine Mystique, and Germaine Greer, uh, The Female Eunuch, I think is what she reads, right? That's when she decides to go out and pursue life outside the bonds of marriage. But what she's doing... Um, and especially how she does it in fear of flying, the man that uh, Isadora runs off with is he's a shit. He is terrible in bed. She openly admits he's less good in bed than than her husband. She's captivated by him, but he just he's such a jackass, right? And that's that's what Bridget's mom does. She runs off with this fucking jackass that does not work out very it, well. So it, that it doesn't is, compute like a jackass that's bad at sex. What's the point? Well, that's a great question. Um, and there's, uh, I'm going to say a lot of patriarchy tied up in there. Um, he very much, the way he talks to her in the books, it, it's, there's a whole lot of psychoanalysis in the book, right? Because her husband's a Freudian psychoanalyst and the guy she leaves for is a Langian psychoanalyst. And I think there's a meta commentary there about how all of this psychoanalysis is just not effectively set up to really understand women anyway. Um, but that's, that's a different and when I'm I, that's so far away from my field um that's just sort of the read I was getting um, but he definitely does some things that are now sort of explicitly 
recognized he does a lot of negging explaining to her why what she's doing isn't good enough right you know that pickup artist sort of bullshit um that keeps manages to keep her captivated in the book and it's kind of interesting you see it in such an early context but it's really interesting to me that fear of flying is is so echoed in bridget jones diary it's uh, you can absolutely see where bridget jones came from but getting back to pride and prejudice bex talked about it a little bit at the beginning but there is this huge overlap in the the narrative structure, right? And to the extent that it's really interesting, you know, y'all didn't love the book and that's great, but it, that's reflected in feminist response to the book as it was split. Some feminists thought it was brilliant and some absolutely hated it. And a lot of the backlash is because it brought back the marriage plot, right? The whole point is to get married. And, and that's Pride and Prejudice, even though she doesn't really want to admit it. And so... We look at Pride and Prejudice and the parallels with Bridget Jones, right? So it's parallel to the point where we have this desirable suitor whose name is Darcy. Uh, we have an early encounter with a proud, arrogant Darcy who the, the heroine dislikes intensely. Uh, we have this love triangle set up where the alternative is a cad who totally doesn't fucking deserve her. It's Wickham in Pride and Prejudice, right? It's Daniel Cleaver in Bridget Jones' Diary. But we have an embarrassing family, uh, in particular the mother, right? But all sorts of family there. Uh, we have a family member who gets in trouble during an, an, gets in trouble due to an interaction with or attachment to a cad. Uh, it's her sister and Wickham in Pride and Prejudice. It's Julio and her mother in Bridget Jones. What's a cad? A cad? Oh my god, that's an English term, right? Like yeah, a... Um... What is, oh, Bex is that like would, a dandy? Would boy be... oh, no. <laughs> is that worth it, it, it's Hugh Grant Hugh Grant is a cad do you get what right. I mean is, okay. is Hugh Grant a fuckboy fuck yeah he's a fuckboy okay. oh yeah right, there we go in both cases the cad has specifically wronged the relevant Darcy in the past right and then Darcy comes in at the end and saves the day and she realizes that he's kind of amazing and wonderful after all right this happens in both Pride and Prejudice and in Bridget Jones why so, am I okay with it in Pride and Prejudice? Is it the time period? Maybe that's what allows me to accept it. I think it. it's because it, it may well be that you're so far removed from it, but the, all of those parallels are there, right? And like in Pride and Prejudice, it's so easy to go, and, oh, um, but you know. Well, and, and, and isn't it also reading it now? Like, I feel that way. Like, I know I was telling you guys when I rewatched Star Trek and like, I would have thought before I rewatched it that I loved the original series, loved it. I rewatched it in 2020 and absolutely was like dumbfounded with how disgusting it was. And like, uh, that does matter. Like I would, I would almost ask you read Pride of Prejudice now and tell me what you think of it. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I, I, I have read it recently. Though. Oh, I just <laughs> did. There you I'm go. Sorry, but I, no, I, it's okay. It's okay. I, think, like, I, I reread it specifically for this. But I'm not. Um, I'm going to say like I love Pride and Prejudice more for the sisters than for the romance lines. So that's the big difference for can me. Can I ask as well? The main character in Pride and Prejudice, the sort of Bridget's um, version, does she have a career or something else to focus well, on? No, she is can't. Time... Yeah. So the time Regent's to England, right? The point then. Um, no, yeah. but she is the the smart one. The right. The, yeah, like, you would well you would like her better <laughs> all right yeah, so bad. moving on to, to Bridget Jones the whole book is satirizing this really unrealistic ideal that sort of haunted women that we can have it all right so it's not 
so much trashing what she wants and you I'm sure are going to disagree with me but hear me out but it's commenting on this failure of the feminist movement to free women from having to be perfect at home perfect sexual objects all the time but also go out and have a career right that's a whole fuck ton of stuff to balance even two out of the three is really a lot I couldn't do it so if you look at Bridget like from a distance not Bridget's view of herself but just where she's at she is objectively successful. I know it's a rom-com trope, but she has an apartment in central fucking London, right? She has jobs that she is successful in, even though she dwells on the fuck-ups, and there's some imposter syndrome there, right? Jobs in publishing and television. Her family are a bunch of shits, but she still has supporting, supportive relationships with them, particularly with her father, even though he does fuck up too, right? And Shannon. I love Shannon. She has a group of true friends they're shitty to each other sometimes they're certainly shitty to other people but they are true friends who are kind to each other and help each other out and sharon is fucking rock star i love her so much i would she's love to go favorite. drink with her yeah same she's my absolute but she was like one of the reasons why i found it easier to keep reading right so but bridget is so saturated with media and other imposed ideas of what she should be that she can't see she's successful right so she's still constantly trying to improve herself or at least think she's supposed to be and so there's there's this great article by kelly a marsh uh, in college literature called contextualizing bridget jones she makes an argument sort of in favor of and understanding why bridget jones has resonated with people and a quote from that is bridget's jones bridget's voice is authentic because it reveals what we all know but rarely face and perhaps never face with such high spirits control is a myth and the experience of being out of control and being forced into mutually dependent relationships is authentic bridget is not in the control she wants to be in and that's why she's obsessing over everything cigarettes alcohol weight it's farcical because anytime she declares in her diary she's going to do something it is basically foreshadowing that it's going to go horrifically awry and be completely fucked up right like if she says she's going to do something it isn't happening but even in advance like with a dinner party right right before the dinner party she's like i'm going to be a domestic goddess everybody's gonna love me but before that when she's thinking about having a dinner party she predicts everything's going to go to shit and she's going to fucking hate everyone when they show up. And what That's happens exactly. is like, everything exactly goes to shit. <laughs> maybe if she didn't, maybe if she wasn't standing there writing about everything That's going to shit. Well, it's going <laughs> to shit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> would be able to focus time. more. But I think yeah, we can was... all agree that what she was trying to cook was over ambitious and ridiculous, right? It's because of the satire in the book, right? She's trying to be this perfect domestic goddess that, and none of her friends expect that from her. They're all like, yeah, no, we knew this wasn't going to go well. And that's not a critique on her. Like, who could even cook all of that, right? And so they made, they're like, we just want to hang out with you. We made these reservations. Bridget making these unrealistic predictions, I can see how this gets viewed, right? And and so does the contextualizing Bridget Jones paper, right? So there's a quote, this is interpreted by some readers as a sign of Bridget's powerlessness over her own future. But it really signals those moments when Bridget forgets that power over one's future is always an illusion. And so it's easier to be charitable if you look at it that way, right? She thinks she knows what's going to happen. She forgets that everything is always going to fuck up always, which is true for a lot of us. I mean, that's not to say we don't accomplish things or have things go well, right? But there's always plans to just go to shit because they do. I was going to say, you just, you, you triggered a, uh, a memory for me about something I was thinking about when I was reading it was how, like... 
there was that weird juxtaposition from her like kind of yeah like starting the chapter with obsessing about her weight and all the stuff and then she like goes over to her parents house and she's freaking out because they say the stuff to her that about like well you know you you need to have a man you're not going to be anything without a man and she's like railing against it because they've said it right and she has this weird like this push and pull of her life of like i have to have a man or i'm not going to be anything why do my parents say i have to have a man or i'm not going to be anything right yeah yes and so another thing that this points out is when problems get solved in bridget jones diary they get solved communally her friends work together to sort out the dinner party they work together to figure out what happened to tom when he actually just went and got a nose job and they were all worried about him right she even managed to contribute like mark darcy comes in and saves the day at the end in the book um the ending in the movie is very different right but she contributes to that because she knows how to antagonize her mom to get her safely away from Julio in a comic way, right? She screws with her about the, the sieving of the gravy, right? So everyone, every problem that gets solved is communal. So we have this societal ideal of an independent woman, but as amazing as Bridget realistically is, it's not realistic. She's dependent on her friends and her family and they are on her and that's a good thing, right? And I think that is something that's certainly in common with the found family aspect of Ted, Ted Lasso, right? People are coming together to help each other out. I also think as much as I can completely understand how the weight discussion is triggering, it is a brilliant send up of not dieting, but diet books and self-help books that's because- true. With how contradictory the, the canon of these ridiculous things are, you can find a way to justify anything, right? <laughs> like, they contradict each other. And she does that in the book, right? She, like, talks about a diet and she's, like, eating just all sorts of stuff, which is great. She sounds like she enjoyed herself, but she's like, this is consistent with this diet. This is consistent with this diet. This is part of this diet, right? Yeah. She's like, And then she acknowledges, yeah, actually, if you're going to do that, you can you can actually do anything, which is you know, a rare moment of insight from her. Beyond this, and I understand how you all don't appreciate her friends commenting on her looks, but when she lives up to some of the ideals she thinks she should, the result is never better than the original Bridget, right? She gets to the weight she wants to be and her friends are like, are you okay? You look sick. You look really drawn, right? Yeah. Because it's not the right weight for her. Or she worries about looking old and ends up applying makeup in a way that just makes her look ridiculous, right? That so was she's... relatable. I've been through that. And so the film makes it much more explicit because of how Mark Darcy conveys his interest in her. Despite what society is doing and what she's imposing on herself, her friends aren't the ones thinking she should lose weight. Her friends aren't the ones thinking she should make all of these changes. They like her like how she is. And I think that's really important. And it can also be really easy to miss if if the way the book resonates with you is so triggering on other levels. I, I agree. And actually have not even considered any of that. You know, like what you've just said makes a lot of sense. Again, out of that contextualizing Bridget Jones uh, paper, there's a quote, and I really liked it. It said, Bridget is made to feel that she's a sinner, but what makes her narrative comic is that it's the confession of a sinner who has no intention whatsoever of reforming. Like, she can talk all she wants about losing weight or whatever, but I think the whole point of, you know, I gained 72 pounds, I lost 74, is that she spent a whole fucking year obsessing over it, and there's, like, two pounds is water weight, right? That's no difference, that's right? Big, as we would say here, that's a pool. That's yeah, <laughs> exactly. So now that I've tried to add some context there and maybe make the book a little more tolerable, we should probably talk about Ted Lasso. 
And I think it's important to note how much Bridget Jones was a cultural touchstone of its time at, and also a product of his time in a way, I think, because it happened so long ago and things have changed enough that it's hard to really dissect out what contributed to making it what it was and what it contributed to society, if that makes sense. It probably wouldn't have been as successful as it was if it didn't resonate so well with a lot of women and what they were facing at that moment in time. And it is kind of the same in a different way with Ted Lasso. Like it's objectively, I think, a well-written, very smart, well-acted, well-produced show, right? But it's difficult to know how well it would have done if it would have been released outside of the context of the pandemic. It was exactly the right thing at the right time. It would have been a great show either way, but whether it would have caught fire the way it did, I'm not sure. Being nice to each other isn't generally popular. <laughs> so, I was you know. a year late as well. I, was, I never actually started watching until like Carol of the Bells was the first episode I had to wait for. So to oh, play, okay. That was, that was when I was, I'm, I'm a late. The first yeah, one I had to wait for was Beard After Hours. And I was like, wait, what? Did we miss an episode? What's happening? <laughs> that would be but, confusing. But yet still post-pandemic brain. I yes, still no, I agree. The pandemic. Yes, yeah. I was still in that, in that mindset, definitely. Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually not that far ahead of you because I didn't watch season one while it was live, but I had finished season one and was waiting for season two. I don't want to draw too much of a comparison between the plot points of Ted Lasso and Bridget Jones' Diary because it was a throwaway pun in the show, right? So I don't want to milk this too hard because it really does risk things going sour, but I am going to see what I can churn up in terms of comparisons. That was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. Absolutely wonderful. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually a little hard to tell all of the Pride and Prejudice possible Bridget Jones possible comparisons, right? Because we're still in the dark forest of season two. We don't know what's going to happen in that third act. But if we look at the Bridget Jones diary and Pride and Prejudice links first, we can see what's going to happen. And in some cases, we can invite speculation to what we're going to see in season three if there is actually a link here. We know there's a rom-com sort of feel to it but if it's actually this style and so if we if we're casting rebecca in the main role right she does initially have that prejudice against ted just like lizzie bennett and bridget jones do against their respective darcy's hers is less that he's arrogant and proud and more that he's a winker right <laughs> although mark darcy and bridget jones diary is a little bit of a winker right at first but... i just want to make sure we're not about to put sam in the like wickham um... i'm not Okay. I am not. <laughs> wow, I was going to get heated. I didn't, yeah. figure, I didn't figure you were, but I was just checking. I was like, we... <laughs> everyone <laughs> breathe. Rebecca has definitely loved a complete piece of shit, although she was in that relationship before knowing of Ted. It is not yet clear if it's going to be a love triangle because we're not sure how cleanly the break with Sam is going to be. We certainly do have, we have the embarrassing or potentially embarrassing mother, right? That element's there. Beck's covered it very nicely. We have this guidebook or instruction manual to why people are crazy. She's there. We don't yet know if there's going to be a catastrophic family issue caused by one cat or another that regards, that requires, excuse me, saving. Uh, and I'll invite you all to speculate as to whether uh, Rebecca's mom is going to find some boyfriend that just turns into an absolute disaster. Uh, or if Rupert is going to make some major play that's going to be worse than what he's already done. I mean, Ted's already white knighted for Rebecca, right? We've got the gala, we've got the darts, but he hasn't done something on the scale of what happens in Bridget Jones' diary or in Pride and Prejudice, where it's a catastrophic sort of status ending kind of. And Rebecca's issue. white knighted for him as well, though. 
No, you know, like, I, I, like I agree with that. But I, I'm sort of going with the Pride and Prejudice Bridget Jones diary. Yeah, that's that's yeah. what I'm lost. <laughs> in Pride and Prejudice and Bridget Jones, Darcy comes in and saves the day, right? And she realizes he's kind of amazing after all. So that could be something of a plot point in season three. It's a process in Pride and Prejudice. She starts to think she might have been unfair and then really grows and then becomes like obsessed with him by the end of it. Right. And Bridget Jones isn't quite the same way. So Rebecca's already started to have a lot of respect for and friendship with Ted. But, you know, if, if this were a direct parallel, will we see something where Ted gets the, the ultimate white knighting opportunity? Or will they turn it around and have her do the ultimate white knighting opportunity for him? I, that that yes. could be interesting too. I'm here for that. So through all three of these, some of the similarities, we have these great comic uses of communication media as a plot device. So in Pride and Prejudice, there's this noble woman who's Mark Darcy's aunt, I think, uh, who is Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And she has these like angry letters and she tries to basically force Lizzie Bennet out of marrying Mark Darcy or Mark Darcy, Fitzwilliam Darcy at the end and tries to keep him out of it because she wants him to marry her daughter. And these letters are a major plot point and they're funny because she's such a pompous sort of shit. In Bridget Jones, we have that office texting and the flirtation between Bridget and Daniel Cleaver. And of course, in Head Lasso, we have the great banter texting head fake storyline, right? Where we think she's texting Ted and really it's Sam, right? So there's this great use of the communication of the time as a plot point that I kind of appreciate. There's another piece that I read called The Barrister's Bedmate by Rochelle Hurst. So this was in Australian feminist studies. And what she really did is she compared Bridget Jones' diaries to typical romance novels. So she holds up a, a style, which I'm assuming is British, but correct me if I'm wrong, Michaela, called Harlequin, Mills, and Boone novels. Yes. Um, okay. And so these really have really rigidly defined gender roles in them, right? Masculinity and femininity, femininity are always portrayed in kind of the same way. And they're very rigidly design, defined and you just don't deviate they from them. They have a format. Yeah. And my granny loved them. And they, they, they do have a format. I think they, do they call it chiclet now? Or is that a different thing? Chiclet is actually more along the Bridget Jones. I don't think they ever sort of lump those that style of romance in there, but I could be wrong. And of course, chiclet is used so much as a pejorative that it can be used to describe anything people don't really have a taste for. Right. Um, because we're society and we hate women. Um, <laughs> but... So we've got these rigidly defined roles in a in a standard romance novel, at least in that format. But in Bridget Jones, the man we see as desirable is much milder. He's a much milder form of masculinity. He's gentle. We eventually learn he's kind, right? He's a, like a civil rights attorney, which is just this brilliant thing. And he's not above wearing like a ridiculous sweater or socks. He's not that rigid, toxic, masculine sort of guy. And we certainly see that in Ted Lasso. He has much less of a presentation as this rigidly, you know, I have to look macho or else kind of guy which is unusual but particularly unusual in the context of a coach of a sports team I was say, even, also... i'm sorry i was gonna say even in his like sports attire like you see the other coaches wearing the athletic gear and he has sort of that warm like the the sweater Mid western the... dad yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah but it's also true in terms of stereotypically masculine the other men it's true of roy and sam as well right so they're very good at subverting these gender norms and so I'm going to quote Hearst's paper again, and she's this becomes a little convoluted because she's quoting some other people too, and I'm going to leave out some internal references or otherwise it's not going to make fucking sense at all. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but Hearst's paper, by repeatedly diarizing her enactment of gender, 
Bridget herself conveys Butler's contention, and that's Judith Butler she's talking about, that being a woman is not in the least bit natural, that it is in fact both laborious and fallacious, requiring endless self-surveillance, monitoring, dieting, purging, and work. And then it quotes Bridget Jones' diary, uh, and I think it very aptly encapsulates that. Bridget Jones' diary says, being a woman is worse than being a farmer. There is so much harvesting and crop spraying to be done. Legs to be waxed, underarms shaved, eyebrows plucked, feet pumice, skin exfoliated, moisturized, spots cleansed, roots dyed, eyelashes tinted, nails filed, cellulite massaged, stomach muscles exercised. The whole performance is so highly tuned, you only need to neglect it for a few days for the whole thing to go to seed. Sometimes I wonder what I would be like if left to revert to nature with a full beard and handlebar mustache on each shin, flabby body flobbering around. Bridget's default is if she doesn't do this whole huge performance of femininity, she's going to revert to something very masculine. <laughs> and maybe not, you know, strong and muscular, but, you know, full beard, handlebar mustache on each shin. That's, a, you know, an a non-feminine image if she doesn't continually put the work in. And so something that struck me in the way that Ted Lasso subverts gender norms is that the performance of gender largely gets shifted onto men, right? Jamie is the one getting waxed. He has it grow back immediately, right? He's the one that has to constantly do that. Nate is super worried about the way he's dressed and how it presents him. And he has to endure that discussion when he's trying on the new suits about how they fit in the crotch. That's very, very gendered, right? And the crafting, the whole crafting thing is usually gender, especially since the Oh, yeah. Time. Right? Roy's the one whose eyebrows are addressed. And in the process of talking about what's wrong with his eyebrows, it's the other guys that freak out, right? Like Nate and Beard are like really self-conscious when this discussion goes on. Jamie worries about fashion, you know, going shirtless at the gala. And then we have, and I realize there's an, a more important cultural context here, but Sam getting that haircut is such a big deal and it's important yeah. culturally, but it also isn't consistent with a lot of gender norms that we're used to seeing in terms of, you know, what women do to get ready versus what men get ready. And even Higgins isn't exempt because he gets ragged for his, his Van Dyke, right? <laughs> when he has that. He's so cute when he's playing his bass with his Van Dyke. Even Beard in Beard After Hours with the pants and like oh, the comments yeah, on absolutely. it, you know? And yes. I think Beard, too, in terms of the emotional aspect, like he's sort of like always chasing. Right. Well, and there's I don't think it's in Beard After Hours, but she puts a hat on him at some point that isn't like what he wants to wear, but it's like her thing. And so she dresses him up in that way. And he's uh, the insecure one in the relationship, which is indeed. usually. So and the women get a little bit of chance to worry about or discuss how they look right. Keely before her photo shoot or Roy just telling her her feet are a mess. Right. And Rebecca worries about her gala dress and the red carpet. But I would argue that Rebecca's is really specific not to how society sees her and more to dealing with Rupert. Yeah, agreed. But Rebecca also gets this great chance to subvert these gender expectations because she talks about using a performance as of gender, right? Fixing her lip liner as a euphemism for taking a shit, right? She uses it as a way to duck out and as an excuse. And and I love that. I appreciate that because I think a lot of men don't think we have conversations like that, you know, as women. Like we don't sit there talking about stuff like that. And I mean, I think if you've listened to this podcast long enough, then you'll understand that we do. <laughs> So also from this from this paper by Hearst, here's another quote. Louise Bernicau argues for the inherent subversiveness of intimate female friendship, given that in friendship, women do for each other what culture expects them to do for men. 
Bridget Jones' diary situates female friendship at the fore, celebrated as both an emblem of female self-sufficiency and a viable alternative source of companionship. Now, I'm going to interrupt that quote for just a second because I know it's really easy to look at it as the opposite because Bridget is so obsessed with having a relationship, but so many of the important things that a relationship with a man, but so many important things that happen to her really bring to the forefront the importance of her friendships that are not romantic in nature. So back to the quote, as Rochelle Mabry points out, Bridget's friendships are portrayed as being equally as important as the central romantic relationship, sometimes arguably more important. And I think that's important because we get that with Ted Lasso too, right? We have Keeley's romantic relationship with Roy. We have Rebecca's troubles trying to find who the perfect man for her is going to be. But female friendships in the story are really important, Rebecca and Keeley's especially, but also Rebecca Keeley and Sassy together. And that's not something we always get to see. All of that, I think, sort of ties Bridget Jones a little more to Ted Lasso than maybe at first glance. You see, I do have one final thought. Um, and that's because with Bridget, we see this conflict between her ideals of what it means to be independent and her actual relationships with her family and friends where she is dependent. And I think with Keeley, particularly when we've seen her build as Keeley Jones' independent woman, they're setting up the season three storyline to explore that a lot more, especially since, you know, at the end of last season, we've rejected this trip with Roy to work on setting up her business. And so I'm actually really interested to see how they have her character navigate that to try to find that sweet spot, because, you know, speaking as a single mom, you can't have it all. I, I can't take my kid to soccer practice and cook a perfect meal every time and have a clean house in this career. It, it's not a thing. Oh, and I so I think that is something that's still sort of foisted upon women because often were expected to do more uh, and seeing Keely navigate that while she tries to set that up and also keep her relationship with Roy moving forward. I, I think that'll be, I, I think that will, I'm hoping that'll be addressed in season three. And I think it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Well, I think there's also that thing in society that the women's work, I'm making air quotes, completely undervalued, isn't work. Right. I absolutely agree with you. You see these things blow up on Twitter all the time where someone talks about how, you know, their career has moved forward and whatever. And people point out like, well, who's taking care of your four kids, right? Things like that. I remember one of my first years as a, as an academic, like past postdoc, you know, single mom trying to manage everything, the commute to work, teaching, taking care of my kiddo, just having everything. I was so tired all the time because my child was very young at the time. And, you know, I had very understanding colleagues but one of them said to me very tongue-in-cheek you know what you need you need a wife <laughs> I was like, yeah someone someone to do all of the home stuff and yeah. I mean but they that's under it. it's like it it is gendering that role like yeah you need someone to do all the home stuff but why does that have to be a wife right no, but it and... just is but it just that's sort of the right. go-to and like you said it was tongue-in-cheek I'm not like you know criticizing here but Nobody, like, when a guy gets a job, they're like, oh, nobody says to the guy, oh, what, who's looking after the kids? What are you going to do with the kids? It's always down. And I'm sure some guys are offended by that as well. That's not me having a go at guys, because I know that there's some men no, are like, some of them get treated me, like you know? a babysitting when they're taking care of their own kids. And that that's... drives me up the fucking wall when men say they're babysitting their own kids. It's like, what, are you getting $5 an hour for it? Shut the fuck up. Babysitters make more than that here. I mean, they make more than minimum wage most of the time. Often, yeah. I thought they were like 14, you know. 15, like just... 15 to $20 an hour if they're young teens. Like if yeah. they're new to the... Wow, yeah. that's pretty cool. 
Yeah. I was talking to one of my coworkers too, like I'm kind of the other side. So she's, you know, she's, um, single career woman, no kids, and she has a great job and she makes great fucking money. And she's just, and like the number of like men who like have a problem with it, you know, and like want to be like, you know, they want to kind of fly in as a savior. And they're like, well, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm this guy at this job. And she's, and she's like, I don't need, like, I'm not looking for someone in my life to be, yeah, to be my, my savior. Like I, I bring my own money. I have everything I need. Like I, you know, and, and good for her, right. She can afford everything she wants. She doesn't need a man to have his, his paycheck supplement her. And she struggles to find someone who's okay with that. Can I do a final thought? I just wanted to say anybody listening who related to what we're saying about we appearance and looking through the eyes of others and whatever stage of that process you're at, I just want you to know that your value does not lie in that area. Your value lies in many other areas, but it's not that one. And if anybody is telling you it is, fuck them. That's my final thought. Amen. That's a good final thought. And I do appreciate the different lenses that we can look at Bridget Jones's diary and decide, you know, hey, yeah, these things work for us and and these things absolutely do not work for us, right? There were there were tiresome aspects to the book, but it wasn't it it had its moments that that got you thinking and and for me in particular, brought up some, there was some of these moments that for me brought up issues that I had had myself growing up, um, you know, and very much in relation to the section that I was talking about. But I do think that, you know, analyzing it and deep doing a, a deeper dive into it helped me not only understand why it was used in the book, but how I can combat it myself in the real world yeah I was grateful for the opportunity to reflect on it and I do I did take some of your points Marita and like yeah I agree so I, yeah. that's why I love it I love hearing everybody else's different point of view you know yeah I agree I think the book like I said I I it's very important to me that we don't dismiss any book you know just because we don't like it it's still an important book it still has value like you know and I think and I think having all the different points of view and the different things we pulled out of it just shows that even a book that can be enraging to one person right like the different things that made us enraged about it the different things that it triggered in all of us and then the fact that like you know it is a product of its time and what is what is that book in that time telling us what are we learning about that time exactly. period or the things that we knew then, you know? And like, I really wonder like what you were saying about Pride and Prejudice, if the excuse of how old it is almost gives you more like, oh, well, that's what we were, that's what it was like then. Like, we're it's almost like the farther back we go, the more it's just like, you know, like, okay, that's what was happening. And like, I feel like the nineties was definitely like, right. Like I was in my twenties was the prime of my life. It so like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> right and it's so it's like enraging because it was like oh my god I was there I remember this oh my god you know okay so Andrea the next book that we're doing is it a book no we're having another movie night because I know y'all are just not into the pillow fight and let me tell you I blame it on Kenny I blame it on Kenny pillow fight right we'll blame him (laughs) because once you do the pillow fight 
we'll never go back. <laughs> um, so we're doing another <laughs> doing another movie night uh with Frozen. Yes. I've never seen that. If excellent. Well, had a great time. Can't wait for the next one. And we'll see you later, Greyhounds. Bye. 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 Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send an email to us at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review.